Chapter Nineteen of the Four Faces by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Nineteen, in the papers. Dick was sleeping so heavily that he hardly stirred when I picked him up, carried him into my bedroom, laid him on my bed, and loosened his clothes. I had decided to sleep on the settee in the room adjoining. Soon after seven next morning I was awakened by hearing him moving about. He had made himself quite at home, I found, for he had had a bath and used my towels and hairbrushes and found his way into a pair of my slippers. "'I hope you don't mind,' he said apologetically, after telling me what he had done. "'And now shall I tell you how I come to be here, Mike?' he asked, clambering up onto my bed and lying down beside me. I told him I wanted to know everything, and at once, and speaking in his rapid, vivacious way, he went on to explain exactly what had occurred. It seemed that when he went and stood by Doris Lorimer under the clock at Paddington Station, she had, as I had told him she probably would, asked him if he were Dick Challoner. Upon his telling her that he was, she said that she had been sent to meet him, and asked him to come with her. She had not told him where they were going, but when she got out at Baker Street Station and he got out after her, a man had suddenly come up to her and said he wished to speak to her privately. She had told Dick to wait and had then walked a little way away with the man, and for about ten minutes they had stood together, conversing in undertones. "'What was the man like?' I interrupted. Dick described him rather minutely. He said he had taken special notice of his appearance because he was such a hairy man, and before he had done I felt practically certain the man who had met Doris Lorimer was the foreign-looking man who had shadowed Preston, Jack, and myself the night before. "'I think,' Dick went on, "'the lady altered her plans after meeting that man, because for so moments after he had gone she seemed undecided what to do. Finally she went out of the station hailed a taxi in Baker Street, told me to get into it, and then said something to the driver that I couldn't hear. We went straight down Baker Street, down Orchard Street. I noticed the names of both streets, then turned to the right and stopped at a house in Cumberland Place. As you had disappeared I was beginning to feel a bit frightened, Mike. I didn't much like the woman, who had spoken hardly a word to me all the time, so just as she got out of the taxi on the left side, I quickly opened the door on the right side, popped out while her back was still turned, and ran away as hard as I could, leaving my suitcase in the taxi. It was very dark, and I believe that until after she had paid the driver she can't have missed me, as nobody came after me. Well, and what did you do then? As soon as I had got well away I went up to a policeman and asked him the way to South Moulton Street. He explained clearly and I came straight on here and asked for you. Your man Simon said you weren't in, and that he didn't know when you would be, so I asked if I might come in and wait, as I said I had something important to say to you. Of course he knew me by sight from seeing me with you sometimes, so he said, certainly, and put me into your sitting-room. It was past eight when I got here. I was awfully hungry, so I ate all the cake and all the biscuits I found in the sideboard in your dining-room, and then I sat down in your big chair to wait for you, and I suppose I then fell asleep. This report interested me a good deal, and I was still pondering it when my man came in with my letters in the newspaper, which he always brought to me before I got up. 
After reading my letters I picked up the newspaper, telling Dick to lie still and not disturb me until I had glanced through it. I had read the principal items of news when suddenly my attention became centered upon an article which was headed, Amazing Series of Robberies, Police Completely Baffled. The article made up nearly a column of closely set type and ran as follows. Within a brief period of three months, that is to say since the beginning of December last, no less than eleven great robberies have been committed in various parts of Great Britain. Up to the present, however, no clue of any sort has been obtained that seems likely to lead to the discovery of the perpetrators of any one of these crimes. The victims of these robberies are the following. Here followed a list of names of eleven well-known rich people, the names of the houses where the robberies had been committed, a brief description of the method employed by the thieves, and the value, approximately, of the property stolen in each case. The houses were, for the most part, large country mansions situated in counties far apart, and Holt Manor, Sir Roland Challoner's seat in Berkshire, figured in the list. The article then continued. When eleven such serious robberies, as we may rightly term them, are committed in comparatively rapid succession, and our police and detective force, in spite of their vaunted ability, prove themselves unable to effect a single arrest, what we have a right to ask is amiss with our police, or with their methods, or with both. Questioned upon the subject, a well-known Scotland Yard inspector yesterday informed our representative that official opinion inclines to the belief that the crimes mentioned have one and all been affected by a group of amazingly clever criminals working in combination. How many members the gang consists of, he said, how they obtained the special information they must have possessed to enable them to locate so accurately the exact whereabouts of the valuables they seized, and how they succeeded in securing those valuables in broad daylight, we have not the remotest notion. The theory held at present, he continued, is that a number of expert thieves have by some means succeeded in becoming intimate with the owners of the houses that have been robbed. We repudiate entirely the theory that servants in the different houses must have been accomplices in the robberies, either directly or indirectly. The article then proceeded to advance a number of apparently plausible theories to account for the non-discovery of the thieves, and finally ended as follows. If, then, our police and detectives would retain, or rather regain, their prestige, it is incumbent upon them at once to take steps to prevent any further outrages of this kind. Otherwise, the police of Great Britain will run a grave risk of becoming the laughing-stock of continental countries, where we make bold to state such a series of robberies, all more or less of the same nature, and involving a loss of, in the aggregate, approximately fifty thousand pounds, would not thus have been committed with impunity. I handed Dick the paper. When he had carefully read the article right through, he looked up abruptly. "'By Jove!' he exclaimed. "'I have an idea.' I waited. For some moments he was silent. Then he continued. "'Do you remember the account of the robbery at Thatched Court, near Bridport? It's one of the robberies mentioned in this list.' "'I can't say I do,' I answered. "'I don't read the newspapers very carefully. Why?' "'I happen to read that account and remember it rather well.' The robbery took place about five weeks ago. The house was entered while everybody, including some of the servants, was at a race meeting. 
Among the things stolen was a pair of shotguns made by Holland and Holland. But what on earth has that to do with anything? Where does the idea come in? It doesn't come in there. It comes in later. You know that every shotgun has a number on it and so can be identified. Now, if these thieves are people who are pretending to be gentlemen, how do you put it? There's a word you use for that, but I've forgotten it. Do you mean masquerading as gentlemen? Masquerading. That's the word I was thinking of. If they are masquerading as gentlemen, they'll probably keep good guns like that to shoot with. They can do that, or think they can, without running much risk, whereas if they sold them they'd run rather a big risk of being caught, because I happen to remember that the numbers of the stolen guns were mentioned in the newspaper account of the robbery. They said the guns were in a case and almost new. Now, this is where my idea comes in as you put it. I heard you tell Dulcie only the other day that you wanted a pair of guns by a tip-top maker. Just afterwards I happened to hear her talking to Mrs. Stapleton about her wedding. By the way, Mike, have you fixed the date yet? Not yet. But what about Mrs. Stapleton? Well, Dulcie spoke about wedding presents, just casually in course of conversation, and I heard her tell Mrs. Stapleton that you had said you hoped among your wedding presents there would be a good gun or, better still, a pair. I heard her say that you said. Mrs. Stapleton didn't answer at once, but I noticed a queer sort of expression come onto her face, as if she'd just thought of something, and presently she said, I have a good mind, darling, to give him a pair of guns that belong to my poor husband. They are quite new, he can't have used them more than once or twice, if that. They were made by a Bond Street gunmaker he always went to, one of the best in London. Mike, is Holland and Holland's shop in Bond Street? Yes, I answered, at the top of Bond Street. Oh, but there are several good gunmakers in Bond Street. Besides, why should Mrs. Stapleton give me such a present as that? I really hardly know her. Wait until I've finished, Mike. You always jump at conclusions so. Dulcie said almost at once, Oh, don't do that, Connie. Mike wouldn't expect such a present as that from you. He might like to take it. You see you hardly know him really, just what you have this moment said. Then Dulcie said, I tell you what I wish you to do, Connie. Let me buy them from you to give to him. What shall I give you for them? I believe that was what Mrs. Stapleton had been driving at all the time. She wanted to sell the guns without running any risk, for, of course, you would never think of noticing the numbers on them, and nobody would ever suppose that guns given to you by Dulcie, apparently new guns, were guns that had been stolen. In the end Dulcie said she would give Mrs. Stapleton eighty pounds for the pair, and that was agreed upon, so that Dulcie had practically bought them for you. In fact, she may have paid Mrs. Stapleton for them already. Now look here. I'll get hold of that newspaper that gave the numbers of the guns, and I bet you when Dulcie gives you those guns you'll find they're marked with the numbers of the stolen guns. Dick, I said thoughtfully, after a moment's pause. Were you eavesdropping when you heard all this? Why, no, of course not, he exclaimed indignantly. I was in the room reading a book, and I couldn't help hearing all they said, though they were talking in undertones. I turned over in my bed and looked into his eyes for an instant or two. Would you be surprised to hear Dick, I said slowly, watching to see what effect my words would have upon him. Would you be surprised to hear that Dulcie gave me a pair of guns, as her wedding present, only last week. 
Dick sprang up in bed. Did she? he cried out, clapping his hands. Oh, Mike, tell me, are they Holland guns? I nodded. Dick jumped off the bed and began to caper about the room. Have you got them here? he exclaimed at last, as his excitement began to subside. They are in the next room. You shall see them after breakfast. I had difficulty in calming Dick's excitement and inducing him to eat his breakfast, and directly breakfast was over I took him into the next room, produced the gun-case, pulled out the two pairs of barrels, and together we examined the numbers stamped upon them. Dick wrote the numbers down in the little notebook he always carried in his trousers pocket, and a little later we drove down to Fleet Street to look up the file of the newspaper in which Dick had, he declared, read the report of the robbery at Thatch Court, near Bridport. I confess that I had not placed much faith in Dick's theory about the numbers. I had taken him down to Fleet Street chiefly because he had so earnestly entreated me to. When, therefore, after turning up the report, Dick discovered with a shout of triumph that the numbers on my guns were actually identical with the numbers mentioned in the newspaper as those of the stolen guns, I was not merely greatly astonished, but also considerably perturbed. Dick, I said thoughtfully, when I had to some extent recovered from my surprise, I really think we shall have to make a private detective of you. Would you like me to take you now to one of the most famous detectives in London, a man who was connected with Scotland Yard for twenty years, who was helping Mr. Osborne to try to discover who the thieves are who robbed Holt Manor, and who it was who killed poor Churchill? Do you mean Mr. Preston? the boy asked quickly, peering up at me out of his own intelligent brown eyes. "'Yes, I suppose you have heard Mr. Osborne and me speak of him.' "'Of course I have, and I should love to see him. Are you going to see him now?' "'I am going straight to him to tell him of your discovery of these numbers. He already knows all about your having deciphered the newspaper ciphers. In fact, he has the cuttings at this moment and your translation of them. He told me the other day that he would like to meet you.' Preston was at home at his house in Warwick Street, off Recent Street. In a few words I had explained everything to him, and at once he grew serious. The unfortunate part, he said at last, is that in spite of this young man's sharpness in making this discovery, it really leaves us almost where we were, unless... Unless what? I asked as he paused, considering. Well, Mr. Barrington, it's like this, he said bluntly. You are engaged to be married to Miss Challoner, and she gives you a wedding present, a pair of new guns, at least they are to all intents new, and naturally she expects you to think they are, and might be vexed if she thought you had found out that she picked them up as a bargain. Now it all turns on this. Have you the moral courage to tell your fiancé that you believe the wedding present she has given you is part of the plunder secured in a recent robbery? indeed that you know it is, and that therefore you and she are unwittingly receivers of stolen goods. I have never myself been in love, so far as I can recollect, but if I were placed as you are I think I should hardly have the courage to disillusion the young lady. I am bound to admit that until he put this problem to me it had not occurred to me to look at the matter in that light and now I felt much as Preston declared he would feel if he were in my place. Dulcie might not mind my having discovered that she had picked up the guns as a bargain. Indeed, why should she? 
but when it came to hinting, as I should have to do if I broached the matter at all, that I believed that her great friend Connie Stapleton knew, when she sold the guns to her, that they had been stolen, Connie Stapleton, who was about to become her stepmother. No, I shouldn't have the pluck to do it. I shouldn't have the pluck to face the storm of indignation that I knew my words would stir up in her. Women are logical enough, in spite of all that the ignorant and unthinking urge to the contrary, but in this particular case Dulcie would, I felt perfectly certain, round upon me, and, in the face of evidence, no matter how damning, declare that I was, to say the least, mistaken. She would go at once to Connie Stapleton and tell her everything and immediately Connie Stapleton would invent some plausible story which would entirely clear her of all responsibility, and from that moment onward I should probably be her bitterest enemy. No, I thought, better, far better, say nothing. Perhaps some day circumstances might arise which would of themselves lead to Mrs. Stapleton, so to speak, giving herself away. Indeed, in face of the discovery, I now decided not to make certain statements to Sir Roland that I had fully intended to make. After all, he was old enough to be my father, and if a man old enough to be my father could be so foolish as to fall in love with an adventuress, let him take the consequences. I should not so much have minded incurring Sir Roland's wrath, but knowing him as well as I did, I felt positive that anything I might say would only strengthen his trust in and attachment to this woman he had decided to wed. He might even turn upon me and tell me to my face that I was striving to oppose his marriage because his marrying must, of course, affect my pecuniary position. An old man who falls in love becomes for the time, I have always maintained, mentally deranged. Preston conversed at considerable length with Dick Challoner and by the time I rose to leave, for I had to call at Willow Street for Dulcie at noon, the two appeared to have become great friends. "'I shall take you with me to call for Dulcie,' I said to Dick as we went out. "'Then we shall drive you to Paddington, put you in the train for Windsor, and leave you to your own devices.' "'I wish I hadn't lost my suitcase,' Dick observed ruefully. "'I bet anything it's in that house in Cumberland Place where the taxi stopped.' unless the woman who met me at Paddington intentionally left it in the taxi when she found I had jumped out and run away. We ought to inquire at Scotland Yard, oughtn't we? We arrived at Willow Road, Hampstead, at ten minutes to twelve. Telling Dick to remain in the taxi, I got out and rang the bell. The door was opened by a maid I had not seen before, and when I inquired for Miss Challoner she stared at me blankly, indeed, as I thought, suspiciously. "'Nobody of that name lives here,' she said curtly. Quickly I glanced up at the number on the door. "'No, I had not mistaken the house. She is staying here,' I said, staying with Mrs. Stapleton. "'With Mrs. Who?' "'Mrs. Stapleton. You have mistaken the house. There's nobody of that name here.' "'Well, Mr. Gastrell, then,' I said irritably. "'Ask Mr. Gastrell if I can see him.' "'I tell you, sir, you've come to the wrong house,' the maid said sharply. "'Then who does live here?' I exclaimed, beginning to lose my temper. The maid looked me up and down. "'I'm not going to tell you,' she answered, and before I could speak again she had shut the door in my face. End of chapter 19 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com.